Welcome to Sleepy Time Travels. You are standing on the threshold of a gateway. It opens to thousands of worlds, the universe of public domain books. Entering here means an instant shift of a century back in time. A time when there was no social media, no inbox, and no twerk to addle your brain and fracture your attention. Are you up for an escape? My name is Russell Stamets. I read old folk tales, books of Eastern philosophy, accounts of exploration and archaeology, or anything that catches my eye. Like this week's selection from Studies in Murder, about the Lizzie Borden axe murders. All I ever knew about it was the little song we sang as kids. The details in the book are new to me and fascinating. If, after hearing this section of the story, you'd like to hear more of it, or the other murders in the book, or to find any of my audiobooks, just search Audible or iTunes for the title, or Russell Stamets. The books are available on Amazon. I'll put links in the episode description. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, follow, subscribe, or anything the platform you found me on allows. It is much appreciated. I think that's all the housekeeping chores, so let's get to it. Assume the comfy position. Take a few deep, slow breaths to ground yourself. And listen. Miss Lizzie Borden was a native of Fall River and had been graduated from the high school. Some of her classmates described her as rather eccentric, which of itself means exactly nothing. There is no human being who would not be described as eccentric by one or another of his or her acquaintances. She had traveled in Europe with other ladies in 1890. Perhaps the outstanding fact about her was her membership in the Central Congregational Church. In various charitable societies, such as the Fruit and Flower Mission, and in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. At her church mission, she taught a class of young people. Her association with these religious bodies was no meaningless fact when clouds began to gather over her life, for her cause was warmly supported by them. The Reverend Mr. Buck and the Reverend Mr. Jubb, her pastors, became her pillars of support. And although after a time, through a constant repetition of their names, some of the less devout were tempted to look upon them as the box and cocks of the Borden case, it could have been no small consolation and a no little value to her when she appeared at public hearings to enter the room on some occasions leaning on the arm of the Reverend Mr. Buck and at other times escorted in similar fashion by the Reverend Mr. Jubb. The frank comments upon the case, which appeared within the first few days, may be typified by an interview given out on August 5th by Mr. Hiram Harrington. He was the husband of Mr. Borden's only sister, and is not to be confused with the officer, Philip Harrington. His remarks are given at length by Mr. Porter. A few passages may be quoted. Mr. Borden was an exceedingly hard man concerning money matters, 
determined, and stubborn. As the motive for the crime, it was money, unquestionably money. If Mr. Borden died, he would have left something over $500,000, and, in my opinion, that estate furnishes the only motive, and a sufficient one for the double murder. Last evening, I had a long interview with Miss Lizzie, who has refused to see anyone else. She was very composed, showed no signs of any emotion, nor were there any traces of grief upon her countenance. That did not surprise me, as she is not naturally emotional. Then followed a description, quoted by Mr. Harrington, of Miss Borden's reception of her father when he returned on Thursday morning. Her solicitous inquiries for his health, the assistance which she gave him in removing his coat, helping him to the sofa, and her offers to cover him with an afghan and to lower the shades at the windows so that he could have a nice nap. On leaving the house, she says, she went directly to the barn to obtain some lead. She informed me that it was her intention to go to Marion on a vacation, and she wanted the lead in the barn loft to make some sinkers. She was a very enthusiastic angler. I went over the ground several times, and she repeated the same story. Miss Borden, when questioned as to a possible explanation of the crime, told Mr. Harrington the story of the burglary in the house a year earlier, and of strange men recently seen by her around the house. She had been frightened enough to tell her parents about them, and to write to her sister at Fairhaven. On the subject of the domestic and business affairs of the Borden family, Mr. Harrington said, Yes, there were family dissensions, although it has always been kept very quiet. For nearly ten years there have been constant disputes between the daughters and their father and stepmother. It arose, of course, with regard to the stepmother. Mr. Borden gave her some bank stock, and the girls thought they ought to be treated as evenly as the mother. I guess Mr. Borden did try to do it, for he deeded to the daughters, Emma L. and Lizzie A., the homestead on Ferry Street, an estate of a hundred and twenty rods of land with a house and barn, all valued at $3,000. This was in 1887. The trouble about money matters did not diminish, nor the acerbity of the family ruptures lessen. And Mr. Borden gave each girl ten shares in the Crystal Spring Bleachery Company, which he paid $100 a share for. They sold them soon after for less than $40 a share. He also gave them some bank stock at various times allowing them, of course, the entire income from them. In addition to this, he gave them a weekly stipend, amounting to $200 a year. In spite of all this, the dispute about their not being allowed enough went on with equal bitterness. Lizzie did most of the demonstrative contention, as Emma is very quiet and unassuming, and would feel deeply any disparaging or angry word from her father. Lizzie, on the contrary, was haughty and domineering, with the stubborn will of her father, and bound to contest for her rights. There were many animated interviews between father and daughter on this point. Lizzie is of a repellent disposition, and after an unsuccessful passage with her father, would become sulky and refuse to speak to him for days at a time. She moved in the best society in Fall River, was a member of the Congregational Church, and is a brilliant conversationalist. 
she thought she ought to entertain as others did, and felt that with her father's wealth she was expected to hold her end up with others of her set. Her father's constant refusal to allow her to entertain lavishly angered her. I've heard many bitter things she has said of her father, and know that she was deeply resentful of her father's maintained stand in this matter. This house on Ferry Street was an old one and was in constant need of repairs. There were two tenants paying $16.50 and $14 a month, but with taxes and repairs, there was very little income from the property. It was a great deal of trouble for the girls to keep the house in repair, and a month or two ago they got disgusted and deeded the house back to their father. I am positive that Emma knows nothing of the murder. The faction which held strong views about the stupidity of the Fall River police and their brutal persecution of an innocent and bereaved woman often said that the officers neglected all opportunities to catch the real murderer. The police formed a theory, said their critics, and having done so, tried by all means, some of them unusually foul, to entangle their victim in it. In the opinion of the man in the street, who is supposed to be a devotee of good, plain common sense, it is, of course, a destructive thing to say of another man that he has a theory. We know what Private Mulvaney thought of his lieutenant's fondness for theorizing. Nobody should ever have any theories at all but just plunge ahead. As a matter of truth, the police of Fall River spent weary hours and days in running down every report, rumor, and suspicion. The usual crop of strange, wild, and crazy men, of tramps and vagrants, of foreigners, and other guilty-looking persons was more prolific than ever. There was a suspected Portuguese who was called a Portuguese because he was a Swede. And there were miscreants who turned up in lonely places, days and weeks after the murders, still brandishing axes or hatchets dripping with gore. Just as the Russian soldiers in England in August 1914 still had on their boots the snow of their native land. Pale young men had been seen on Second Street. There was a camp of wandering horse traders in Westport, and with them, it was alleged, Mr. John Vinicum Morse had been darkly dealing. There was a disgruntled owner of property across the river, whose business relations with Mr. Borden might have aroused him to dreadful vengeance against all who bore the hated name. One Dr. Handy, who was on Second Street about an hour before the murders, had seen a very peculiar-looking man who attracted the doctor's most particular attention. This man was discussed in column after column of newspaper space as Dr. Handy's wild-eyed man. Some participants in the discussion held that the wild-eyed man was better, but still cryptically known as Mike the Soldier. Mike was run down and found free from all criminous taint, excepting that he was near Second Street about ten o'clock that morning, that he was pale as a result of a spree, and that he wore an odd and noticeable pair of trousers. It appeared that he followed the weaver's trade when he was not going from one barroom to the next, and by talking with his fellow weavers and various saloon keepers. It was easy to learn all that he had been doing and to find that it was unimportant. But the wild-eyed man lingered off stage. 
A boy had seen a man jump over the back fence of the Borden house. A Frenchman had helped the same man escape toward New Bedford. But how he knew it was the same man. In what way he helped him. And what he was escaping from do not appear. Two officers found somebody like him in the person of the chief of the gypsy horse dealer's camp. He had the satisfactory name of Beersley S. Cooper, but he also had an alibi, which prevented anybody from visiting upon him the punishment which mankind always longs to inflict upon a horse dealer. The terror of the murders had spread throughout New England, and men seen getting on railroad trains or getting off them with dust on their shoes or spots on their clothes, were asked who they were and what they had been doing. A Bostonian was frightened half to death by detention and questioning. On Monday, another bloody hatchet was discovered on a farm in South Somerset. It was the property of somebody called Sylvia, and the police rushed out there, with the first words of the famous song trembling upon their lips. But the blood was the blood of a chicken, and old Mr. Sylvia was left undisturbed. Petty offenses hover close to great crimes as the sucker follows the shark. When at some fate, during the French Revolution, two men were discovered lurking under a platform built for the spectators, they were charged with designs against the Republic and promptly lynched by the mob. They went to their deaths, however, with the somewhat humiliating but probable truthful confession that gunpowder plots were far from their minds. They had gone there merely to gaze upwards at the sturdy legs of citizenesses. One man, seen by a neighbor on the back fence of the Borden Yard, was caught and forced blushingly to admit that he had been attracted, as Mr. Morse had been, by the pears. But his interest was, of course, illicit, and hence his confusion. The police investigated every plausible rumor, and in order to deal according to precept with unturned stones, spent much good effort in many searches which were hopeless from the start. Their work at first was undoubtedly open to criticism, although metropolitan police often do no better with perplexing crimes. They finally arrived at a conclusion, and its results will appear in the account of the four legal investigations which followed. Something should be said now about Bridget Sullivan, since she was in the house, or within a few feet of it, when each murder was committed. It has often been asked why she was not suspected. The answer is simple. She bore a good character. She had no motive to such crimes, and she was exonerated by the person who was still nearer to the scenes of the murders, Miss Lizzie Borden herself. Vague suggestions of complicity or guilty knowledge arose against her, but evidently were not shared by the officers of the law. Bridget was an agitated and badly scared woman for a few days and at last had to undergo a long cross-examination by one of the most skillful advocates in the state. It is said that she returned to her native land some years, not very long after the trial. And there, an elderly woman, she may still abide in the intermittent calm of the Irish free state. Of all the rumors as to murderers from the outside, only one had the charm of romance. Somebody attempted to inject a maritime flavor into the mystery by recalling the trial in 1876 of the mutineers of the schooner Jefferson Borden. 
It was suggested that Mr. Borden had an interest in this vessel, and that the guilty mutineers, imbued with the combined spirits of Clark Russell and Conan Doyle, had nursed their vengeful feelings for sixteen years, only to strike at last in this telling fashion. Unluckily for the story, it was discovered that two of the accused had been acquitted on their trial. One had served his term and now lived, crippled, in St. Paul. While the two ringleaders were safe in the state prison at Thomaston, Maine. Mr. Borden, moreover, had no connection with the schooner. On the day after the murders, this notice was sent to and duly appeared in the newspapers. $5,000 reward. The above reward will be paid to anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Andrew J. Borden and his wife. Signed, M. L. Borden and Lizzie A. Borden. The funeral services were held on Saturday, August 6. From three to four thousand people surrounded the house, and a passage was kept clear by twenty police officers. Other crowds of people lined the streets as the hearses and the carriages with mourners proceeded to the cemetery. The coffins were not buried, but placed in a receiving tomb. In the evening of that day, the mayor of Fall River, Dr. John W. Coughlin, with City Marshal Hilliard, went to the Borden House. The number of people standing on the sidewalks or in the street itself was still so great that the mayor's carriage was driven with difficulty. Policemen were called and ordered to send the people away. The mayor and the marshal then went into the house to confer with the Mrs. Borden and Mr. Morse. Dr. Coughlin said, I have a request to make of the family, and that is that you remain in the house for a few days. I believe it would be better if you do so. Miss Lizzie raised the question. Why, is there anybody in this house suspected? The mayor answered, Well, perhaps Mr. Morse can answer that question better than I, as his experience last night, perhaps, would justify him in the inference that somebody in the house is suspected. Miss Lizzie persisted. I want to know the truth and she repeated this remark. Then the mayor said, Well, Miss Borden, I regret to answer, but I must answer yes. You are suspected. She replied, I'm ready to go now. Her sister said, We have tried to keep it from her as long as we could. Dr. Coughlin told the family that if they were disturbed in any way or annoyed by the crowds in the street, they should either notify the officer in the yard or send word to him, the mayor, who would see that the police department gave them protection. Miss Emma Borden then remarked, We want to do everything we can in this matter, and the two officials departed. On the following Tuesday, an investigation began, when Bridget Sullivan was examined by the district attorney, Mr. Hosea M. Knowlton, assisted by the city marshal, the mayor, and the medical examiner. This investigation, on the same day, took the form of an inquest, before Judge Josiah C. Blaisdell of the Second District Court. A summons to attend was served upon Miss Lizzie Borden. Her family attorney, Mr. Andrew J. Jennings, appeared and made an appeal to the court for permission to be present, in the interests of the witnesses. The justice heard his argument, but denied admission. The inquest continued its sessions in secret until Thursday, while Fall River waited in suppressed excitement and impatience, 
reading newspaper bulletins, and learning nothing. The case was of such importance as to attract to the city the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Mr. Albert E. Pillsbury, who was in consultation with Mr. Knowlton and other officers. In addition to Miss Lizzie Borden, Dr. Bowen, Mrs. Churchill, Mr. Hiram Harrington, Mr. John Vinicum Morse, and Miss Emma Borden were examined. Another witness, who was followed about in Fall River and unsuccessfully questioned by the newspaper reporters, was Professor Wood of the Harvard Medical School. On the third and last day of the inquest, there appeared Eli Bentz and two other witnesses who were supposed to offer testimony as to the attempt to buy poison. On that same day, autopsies were held at the cemetery upon the two bodies. Chiefly, they disclosed ten incised wounds on the head and face of Mr. Borden, and on the body of his wife, one wound in the back, just below the neck, and no less than eighteen incised and crushing wounds on the head. The inquest ended late Thursday afternoon, one week after the murders. A short consultation was held, and at the end of it, Mr. Jennings was called, and Miss Lizzie Borden arrested for the murder of her father. No mention of Mrs. Borden was made in the warrant. The prisoner was detained at the police station under charge of the matron, but she was not confined in the cell room. Mr. Porter writes, No other prisoner arrested in Bristol County had been accorded the delicate and patient consideration which Marshal Hilliard bestowed upon Miss Lizzie Borden. She was arraigned in the district court before Judge Blaisdell next morning. She entered the room on the arm of Reverend Mr. Buck, and is described as wearing a dark blue suit and a black hat with red flowers. She was not crying, but her features were far from firm. She has a face and chin betokening strength of character, and on this occasion the sensitiveness of the lips, especially, betrayed itself. She was constantly moving her lips as she sat in the courtroom, in a way to show that she was not altogether unemotional. To the warrant, she pleaded not guilty. Mr. Jennings protested against the proceedings as extraordinary, in that the judge had presided at the inquest and was now sitting to hear the case against her. This he called sitting in a double capacity and not ensuring his client an unprejudiced hearing. The district attorney replied that the statutes required Judge Blaisdell to hold the inquest, which was in itself an action against no one, but an attempt to ascertain facts. The same procedure had been followed more than twenty times to his knowledge, in cases which had not excited so much attention. The inquest was still proceeding and the evidence before it had no bearing upon this hearing. The judge was equally required by statute to hear this case. The court overruled Mr. Jennings' motion, and the point does not seem to have been raised again. The lawyers agreed upon August 22nd for the preliminary hearing, and Miss Borden was taken by train to the jail at Taunton. At railway stations and other places, crowds gathered to look at her. On the date appointed, Miss Borden was brought back to Fall River, but a postponement was made until August 25th. She remained in charge of the police matron and was not taken back to Taunton. Finally, the hearings began. Crowds were present, inside and out of the courtroom, and it is said that 40 newspapers were represented by the reporters. The prisoner entered the court, leaning upon the practiced arm of the Reverend Mr. Buck. 
there began a preliminary trial which lasted for six days. Few such extensive investigations, prior to the presentation of a criminal case to the grand jury, could ever have been held in the state. Mr. Melvin O. Adams of Boston was now associated with Mr. Jennings in the defense. The witnesses included the medical examiner, Dr. Dolan, Thomas Kieran, an engineer, who gave technical details about measurements of the Borden House, officers of the banks which Mr. Borden had visited the day he was killed, John Vinicom Morse, Bridget Sullivan, Mrs. Churchill, Miss Alice Russell, who testified only as to events on the day of the murder, Eli Bentz and the other men from the pharmacy, whose appearance, says Mr. Porter, in the judgment of many of the spectators, produced evidence of uneasiness on the part of Lizzie Borden and some officers of the police. On the fifth day of the hearing, Professor Wood's evidence was given. It was to the effect that his tests and analyses of the two stomachs showed that digestion was much further advanced with Mr. Borden than with his wife. There was about two and a half hours difference. No trace of prussic acid was found in either stomach. Tests were not made for any other poison, but there was no evidence of irritation. He had made examinations for bloodstains on a hatchet and two axes, found in the Borden house, and on a dress waist, two skirts and shoes, and stockings belonging to the prisoner. Except for a minute spot on one of the skirts, he found no blood upon any of these. This testimony was received with great relief and joy by the friends of Miss Borden. Quite naturally and correctly, they looked upon it as a strong point in her favor. After some more police evidence, the district attorney read the shorthand report of the testimony of Miss Lizzie Borden given at the inquest. This is an exceedingly interesting and important series of questions and answers. Miss Borden, as we have seen, talked to friends and neighbors and to the police on the day of the murders. Afterwards, except for the inquest statement, she never opened her mouth. She acted upon what proved to be the best of legal advice, and at her final trial availed herself of her right not to go upon the witness stand. The report of the proceedings at the inquest is not available today. I am not sure that it is in existence. Miss Borden's testimony at the inquest, introduced at the preliminary trial as part of the case of the Commonwealth, is significant not only for itself, but for the point raised when it was offered as evidence at the trial before the Superior Court. It is to be found today only in their press reports of that date, and in Mr. Porter's book, to which I am so much indebted for information about this period in the history of the case. I quote his version of it. My father and stepmother were married 27 years ago. I have no idea how much my father was worth, and have never heard him form an opinion. I know something about what real estate my father owned, two farms in Swansea, the homestead, some property on North Main Street, Borden Block, some land further south, and some he had recently purchased. Did you ever deed him any property? He gave us some land, but my father bought it back. Had no other transaction with him. He paid in $5,000 cash for this property. Never knew my father made a will, but heard so from Uncle Morse. Did you know of anybody that your father had trouble with? There was a man who came there some weeks before, but I do not know who he was. He came to the house one day, and I heard them talk about a store. My father told him he could not have a store. The man said, 
I thought with your liking for money, you would let anybody in. I heard my father order him out of the house. Think he lived out of town because he said he could go back and talk with father. Did your father and anybody else have bad feelings between them? Yes, Hiram C. Harrington. He married my father's only sister. Nobody else? I have no reason to suppose that that man had seen my father before that day. Did you ever have any trouble with your stepmother? No. Within a year? No. Within three years? No. About five years ago? What was it about? About my stepmother's stepsister, Mrs. George Whitehead. Was it a violent expression of feeling? It was simply a difference of opinion. Were you always cordial with your stepmother? That depends upon one's idea of cordiality. Was it cordial according to your ideas of cordiality? Yes. Continuing. I did not regard her as my mother, though she came there when I was young. I declined to say whether my relations between her and myself were those of mother and daughter or not. I called her Mrs. Borden, and sometimes mother. I stopped calling her mother after the affair regarding her sister-in-law. Why did you leave off calling her mother? Because I wanted to. Have you any other answer to give me? No, sir. I always went to my sister. She was older than I was. I don't know but that my father and stepmother were happily united. I never knew of any difficulty between them, and they seemed to be affectionate. The day they were killed, I had on a blue dress. I changed it in the afternoon and put on a print dress. Mr. Morse came into our house whenever he wanted to. He has been here once since the river was frozen over. I don't know how often he came to spend the nights, because I had been away so much. I have not been away much during the year. He has been there very little during the past year. I have been away a great deal in the daytime during the last year. I don't think I have been away much at night, except once when I was in New Bedford. I was abroad in 1890. I first saw Morse Thursday noon. Wednesday evening, I was with Miss Russell at nine o'clock, and I don't know whether the family were in or not. I went directly to my room. I locked the front door when I came in. Was in my room Wednesday, not feeling well all day. Did not go down to supper. Went out that evening and came in and locked the front door. Came down about nine next morning. Did not inquire about Mr. Morse that morning. Did not go to Marion at that time, because they could go sooner than I. I had taken the secretaryship of the Christian Endeavor Society and had to remain over till the tenth. There had been nobody else around there that week but the man I have spoken of. I did not say that he came a week before, but that week. Mr. Morse slept in the spare room Wednesday night. It was my habit to close my room door when I was in it. That Wednesday afternoon, they made such a noise that I closed the door. First saw my father Thursday morning downstairs reading the Providence Journal. Saw my mother with a dust cloth in her hand. Maggie was putting a cloth into a mop. Don't know whether I ate cookies and tea that morning. No, the coffee pot was on the stove. My father went downtown after nine o'clock. I did not finish the handkerchiefs because the irons were not right. I was in the kitchen reading when he returned. I am not sure that I was in the kitchen when my father returned. I stayed in my room long enough to sew a piece of lace on a garment. That was before he came back. I don't know where Maggie was. 
I think she let my father in and that he rang the bell. I understood Maggie to say he had said he'd forgotten his key. I think I was upstairs when my father came in, and I think I was on the stairs when he entered. I don't know whether Maggie was washing windows or not when my father came in. At this point, the district attorney had called Miss Borden's attention to her conflicting statements regarding her position when her father came in, and her answer was, You have asked me so many questions, I don't know what I have said. Later, she said she was reading in the kitchen and had gone into the other room for a copy of the Providence Journal. I last saw my mother when I was downstairs. She was dusting the dining room. She said she had been upstairs and made the bed and was going upstairs to put on the pillow slips. She had some cotton cloth pillows up there and said she was going to work on them. If she had remained downstairs, I should have seen her. She would have gone up the back way to go to her room. If she had gone to the kitchen, I would have seen her. There was no reason to suppose I would not have seen her when she was downstairs or in the room, except when I went downstairs once for two or three minutes. I ask you again what you suppose she was doing from the time you saw her till eleven o'clock. I don't know unless she was making her bed. She would have had to pass your room, and you would have seen her, wouldn't you? Yes, unless I was in my room or down cellar. I supposed she had gone away because she told me she was going, and we talked about the dinner. Didn't hear her go out or come back. When I first came downstairs, saw Maggie coming in, and my mother asked me how I was feeling. My father was still there, still reading. My mother used to go and do the marketing. Now I call your attention to the fact that you said twice yesterday that you first saw your father after he came in when you were standing on the stairs. I did not. I was in the kitchen when he came in, or in one of the three rooms, the dining room, kitchen, and sitting room. It would have been difficult for anybody to pass through these rooms unless they passed through while I was in the dining room. A portion of the time, the girl was out of doors, wasn't she? Yes. So far as I know, I was alone in the house the larger part of the time while my father was away. I was eating a pear when my father came in. I had put a stick of wood into the fire to see if I could start it. I did no more ironing after my father came in. I then went in to tell him I did not put away the ironing board. I don't know what time my father came in. When I went out to the barn, I left him on the sofa. The last thing I said was to ask him if he wanted the window left that way. Then I went to the barn to get some lead for a sinker. I went upstairs in the barn. There was a bench there which contained some lead. I unhooked the screen door when I went out. I don't know when Bridget got through washing the windows inside. I knew she washed the windows outside. I knew she didn't wash the kitchen windows, but I don't know whether she washed the sitting room windows or not. I thought the flats would be hot by the time I got back. I had not fishing apparatus, but there was some at the farm. It is five years since I used the fish line. I don't think there was any sinker on my line. I don't think there were any fish lines suitable for use at the farm. What? Did you think you would find sinkers in the barn? My father once told me that there was some lead and nails in the barn. How long do you think you occupied in looking for the sinkers? About fifteen or twenty minutes. Did you do nothing besides look for sinkers in the twenty minutes? Yes, sir. I ate some pears. Would it take you all that time to eat a few pears? 
I do not do things in a hurry. Was Bridget not washing the dining room windows and the sitting room windows? I do not know. I did not see her. Did you tell Bridget to wash the windows? No, sir. Who did? My mother. Did you see Bridget after your mother told her to wash the windows? Yes, sir. What was she doing? She had got a long pole and was sticking it in a brush, and she had a pail of water. About what time did you go out into the barn? About as near as I can recollect, ten o'clock. What did you go into the barn for? To find some sinkers. How many pears did you eat in that twenty minutes? Three. Is that all you did? No. I went over to the window and opened it. Why did you do that? Because it was too hot. I suppose that it is the hottest place in the premises. Yes, sir. Could you, while standing looking out of that window, see anybody enter the kitchen? No, sir. I thought you said you could see people from the barn. Not after you pass a jog in the barn. It obstructs the view of the back door. What kind of lead were you looking for? For sinkers? Hard lead? No, sir. Soft lead. Did you expect to find the sinkers already made? Well, no. thought maybe I'd find one with a hole through it. Was the lead referred to tea lead or lead that comes in tea chests? I don't know. When you were going fishing, when were you going fishing? Monday. The next Monday after the fatal day? Yes, sir. Had you lines already? No, sir. Did you have a line? Yes, sir. Where was your line? Down to the farm. Do you know whether there were any sinkers on the line you left at the farm? I think there was none on the line. Did you have any hooks? No, sir. Then you were making all this preparation without either hook or line. Why did you go into the barn after sinkers? Because I was going downtown to buy some hooks and line, and I thought it would save me from buying them. Now, to the barn again. Do you not think I could go into the barn and do the same as you in a few minutes? I do not do things in a hurry. Did you then think there were no sinkers at the barn? I thought there were no sinkers anywhere there. I had no idea of using my lines. I thought you understood that I wasn't going to use these lines at the farm because they hadn't sinkers. I went upstairs to the kind of bench there. I had heard my father say there was lead there. Looked for lead in a box up there. There were nails and perhaps an old doorknob. Did not find any lead as thin as tea lead in the box. Did not look anywhere except on the bench. I ate some pears up there. I have now told you everything that took place up in the barn. It was the hottest place in the premises. I suppose I ate my pears when I first went up there. I stood looking out of the window. I was feeling well enough to eat pears, but don't know how to answer the question if I was feeling better than I was in the morning, because I was feeling better that morning. I picked the pears up from the ground. I was not in the rear of the barn. I was in the front of it. Don't see how anybody could leave the house then without my seeing them. I pulled over boards to look for the lead. That took me some time. I returned from the barn and put my hat in the dining room. I found my father and called to Maggie. I found the fire gone out. I went to the barn because the irons were not hot enough and the fire had gone out. I made no efforts to find my mother at all. Sent Maggie for Dr. Bowen. Didn't see or find anything after the murders to tell me my mother had been sewing in the spare room that morning. 
What did your mother say when you saw her? She told me she had had a note and was going out. She said she would get the dinner. The district attorney continued to read. My mother did not tell when she was coming back. I did not know Mr. Morse was coming to dinner. I don't know whether I was at tea Wednesday night or not. I had no apron on Thursday. That is, I don't think I had. I don't remember, surely. I had no occasion to use the axe or hatchet. I knew there was an old axe downstairs, and last time I saw it, it was on the old chopping block. I don't know whether my father owned a hatchet or not. Assuming a hatchet was found in the cellar, I don't know how it got there, and if there was blood on it, I have no idea as to how it got there. My father killed some pigeons last May. When I found my father, I did not think of Mrs. Borden, for I believed she was out. I remember asking Mrs. Churchill to look for my mother. I left the screen door closed when I left, and it was open when I came from the barn. I can give no idea of the time my father came home. I went right to the barn. I don't know whether he came to the sitting room at once or not. I don't remember his being in the sitting room or sitting down. I think I was in there when I asked him if there was any mail. I do not think he went upstairs. He had a letter in his hand. I did not help him to lie down and did not touch the sofa. He was taking medicine for some time. Mrs. Borden's father's house was for sale on 4th Street. My father bought Mrs. Borden's half-sister's share and gave it to her. We thought what he did for her people he ought to do for his own, and he then gave us grandfather's house. I always thought my stepmother induced him to purchase the interest. I don't know when the windows were last washed before that day. All day Tuesday I was at the table. I gave the officer the same skirt I wore that day, and if there was any blood on it, I can give an explanation as to how it got there. If the blood came from the outside, I cannot say how it got there. I wore tie shoes that day and black stockings. I was under the pear trees four or five minutes. I came down the front stairs when I came down in the morning. The dress I wore that forenoon was a white and blue stripe of some sort. It is at home in the attic. I did not go to Smith's drugstore to buy prussic acid, did not go to the rooms where mother or father lay after the murder. Went through when I went upstairs that day. I now ask if you can furnish any other suspicion concerning any person who might have committed the crime. Yes, one night as I was coming home not long ago, I saw the shadow of a man on the house at the east end. I thought it was a man because I could not see any skirts. I hurried in the front door. It was about 8.45 o'clock, not later than 9. I saw somebody run around the house last winter. The last time I saw anybody lately was since my sister went to Marion. I told Mr. Jennings, may have told Mr. Hanscom. Who suggested the reward offered, you or your sister? I don't know. I may have. Mr. Knowlton stopped reading and said, This is the case of the Commonwealth. The defense called Dr. Bowen and Marshall Hilliard. On the sixth day of the trial, arguments of counsel were presented at a length hardly less than at a trial before a jury. At the conclusion of the speech of the prosecuting attorney, Judge Blaisdell said, the long examination is now concluded, 
and there remains for the magistrate to perform what he believes to be his duty. It would be a pleasure for him, and he would doubtless receive much sympathy if he could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty. You may go home. But upon the character of the evidence presented through the witnesses who have been so closely and thoroughly examined, there is but one thing to be done. Suppose for a single moment a man was standing there. He was found close by that guest chamber, which, to Mrs. Borden, was a chamber of death. Suppose a man had been found in the vicinity of Mr. Borden, was the first to find the body, and the only account he could give of himself was the unreasonable one that he was out in the barn looking for sinkers. Then he was out in the yard. Then he was out for something else. Would there be any question in the minds of men what should be done with such a man? There was a pause, and the old judge's eyes filled with tears. So there was only one thing to do, painful as it may be. The judgment of the court is that you are probably guilty, and you are ordered committed to await the action of the superior court. If the tide seemed to set against Miss Borden, and if the preliminary skirmishes had given distress to those who had already acquitted her in their minds, it must not be supposed that her friends, including a number of highly respected and influential persons, were not gathering valiantly. The painful situation in which she found herself, her sex, and her religious associations, were summoning to her aid many people from all parts of the state, persons who had hitherto been strangers to her. The points which had told against her were the seemingly impossible nature of the story about the visit to the barn or yard, the alleged attempt to buy poison, the lapse of time between the two murders, which appeared to shake the theory of an outside murderer, the failure to find the sender of the note to Mrs. Borden, and the fact that, from the stairs which she had descended when her father entered the house, the body of her stepmother could have been visible. But, on the other hand, the glaring improbability of such murders being committed by a woman, combined with the failure to find any definitely determined weapon, and, above everything, the absence of blood from the clothing or person of the accused, all these not only strengthened the faith of those who were sure of her innocence, but convinced the authorities that they were far from having a strong case. Her defense, so far as concerns those in whose hands it was officially placed, was conducted with wisdom, dignity, and propriety. Elsewhere, however, there was more than the usual amount of irresponsible agitation, gushing sentimentality, and abuse of officers of the government who were merely being bent on the disagreeable task of carrying out their plan and imperative duties. The abuse was the more disgusting since much of it originated with persons of education and self-professed moral superiority. The lynching mob exists in America in two forms, equally discouraging to those who cling to their faith in democracy. The mob which hunts down and kills some wretch of a malefactor or alleged malefactor and the mob which rails against legal officers who are engaged in protecting the community against crime. Some newspaper writers and public personages, men and women, took up Miss Borden's cause with no other equipment than ignorance. Blatantly, they abused the judge, the district attorney, and the police. 
One editorial writer was outraged in his feelings because of the harshness of the words used in the warrant for arrest, as if a charge of murder should be conveyed in terms of delicate insinuation. To tell him that the form of complaint was a hundred and fifty years old would have availed nothing. So excited was he in behalf of the unfortunate girl that he would have suggested an agreeable form for this case. The Reverend Mr. Jubb said that the action of Judge Blaisdell in sitting on the bench after presiding at the inquest was indecent, outrageous, and not to be tolerated in any civilized community. To him, it was mildly remarked that the statute under which the judge had acted had been in use in America nearly two hundred years, and somewhat antedated his own personal knowledge of this country, since he had come hither from England within about one year. Associations like the Women's Auxiliary of the YMCA took up Miss Borden's cause, sometimes with enthusiasm and knowledge, sometimes merely with enthusiasm. Prayers were invited from religious societies all over the country. The verdict was found in advance. And heaven was to be implored or advised to assist the unfortunate girl. There was an unpleasant flavor of sectarianism about much of this agitation. Innocence must be assumed because of church membership. In contradiction to this, however, I have seen proof that some of the more thoughtful of the lady's spiritual brethren including clergymen in different parts of the state, had no sympathy with the attempts to interfere with law by the methods of the revival and the camp meeting. As to the term which was applied to her, it is, of course, conventional to refer to anybody accused of a capital crime as this girl or this boy, provided that she or he is still under sixty years of age. And, for the other word, Mr. Porter said that throughout the whole proceeding, Miss Borden was called unfortunate, but that nobody good, bad, or indifferent was ever heard to say that the murdered man and woman were unfortunate. Ten thousand tears are shed in America for persons accused of murder, and even for persons convicted of murder, to every word of regret spoken for the victims of the murders. And that, according to thoughtful investigators, is one of the reasons why America leads the world in its shameful record for the unlawful taking of human life. Although a few semi-civilized oriental countries and certain turbulent provinces of Italy may be exceptions to this statement. Advocates of suffrage for women came energetically to the defense of Miss Borden, almost as if her sex alone proved her innocence. One especially good result of the present status of women as voters is a nearly complete abandonment on the part of their political leaders of the belief which was prevalent thirty or forty years ago, that all women accused of grave crimes should either be cleared in advance of trial, or if convicted, should not be liable for punishment. Their present attitude is a far more reasonable acceptance of women's duties and responsibilities to the state, as no more and no less than those of men. But in 1892, Miss Mary A. Livermore, an estimable lady of very vigorous character, Mrs. Susan Fessenden, president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and Miss Lucy Stone, all distinguished in the struggle for what were then termed women's rights, came to the aid and comfort of Miss Borden. They did it so ecstatically 
as to leave doubt whether they were acting from logic or from emotion. Miss Borden's name means little today to those who do not remember the year of her trial. Perhaps the younger folk in Scotland have never heard of Madeline Smith, although their fathers and grandfathers followed her adventures with palpitating interest. Soon, perhaps, the name of Mrs. Maybrick will have completely faded from memory in England and America. One may search old books on criminology and summon one's own recollections in vain to recall the name of any American woman resting under the capital charge, which was so widely known as that of Miss Borden. Perhaps the equally unfortunate Miss Nan Patterson is the only one for comparison. Although far in the past they heard of Mrs. Cunningham, more recently arose the grim figure of Mrs. Rogers of Vermont and the adventurous Clara Phillips of California. Nobalad des Dames du Temps celebrates these names. They, too, are gone with the snows of yesteryear. But once, upon railroad trains, in clubs, at tea parties, and around every breakfast table could be heard conversations about Lizzie. A voice would arise from a group of talkers, anywhere between the two oceans. I tell you, she never did it in the world. It's impossible. I know she never did it and nobody had to ask what was being discussed. An account of the case would be incomplete if it did not record the fact that, however unjustly, the event was celebrated in rhyme in one of those jingles which are never forgotten. Who invented it, nobody knows, but everyone heard it. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father... 41. This has been communicated to me in one way or another at least half a dozen times, while I have been writing this article, by persons to whom it was the most vivid recollection of the Fall River murders, surpassing even the mutton soup. Miss Carolyn Wells told me that once, when she was repeating some limericks and nonsense rhymes to President Roosevelt on the veranda at Sagamore Hill, he recited this and said that, of all the doggerel verse he had ever heard, it had remained most persistently in his mind. Similar folk rhymes have been associated with two notorious crimes in Great Britain, one which delighted Sir Walter Scott. He dwelt in Lion's Inn, and that even grimmer quatrain, which sums up the popular notion, as these things do, of the Westport murders in Edinburgh. Up the close and down the stair, but and bent we burke and hare. Burke's the butcher, hare's the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef. In America, there is hardly a notorious murder which does not evoke one or two jokes or epigrams. Sometimes witty, sometimes ribald, but only one other beside the Fall River murder has, to my knowledge, brought forth any rhyme. In the early nineties, one Isaac Sawtell, living in New Hampshire, planned to do away with his brother, Hiram. He noted with approval that the neighboring state of Maine, more considerate toward gentlemen of his disposition than his own New Hampshire, had abolished the death penalty. So he took his brother out for a drive one evening, crossed, as he thought, into Maine, and killed him. But his topographical sense was at fault. The deed had really been done in New Hampshire after all, and that state 
with its more ancient and barbarous laws, dealt with him in the end, a fact which should have grieved every humanitarian. The incident was described in a couplet by some cockney rhymester. Two brothers in our town did dwell. Hiram sought heaven, but Isaac sought hell. Miss Borden went back to the jail in Taunton to await the action of the grand jury. It was with her as with the Napoleonic prisoners in Peter Ibbotson. She could not have found her durance very vile. I have been credibly informed that she was seen on the streets of Taunton from time to time, having been out for walks. Whether this privilege was accorded because of the advanced decision of her innocence, or because she was joint heiress to a considerable estate, there is no information. In October occurred a thoroughly discreditable incident. At first it seemed to be a heavy blow at Miss Borden's interests, but its effect was almost instantly reversed, and in the end probably worked in her favor. A newspaper reporter with the felicitous name of Henry G. Tricky and a detective named Edwin D. McHenry were concerned in the production of a long newspaper article with which somebody hoodwinked the Boston Globe. Tricky and his friends blamed McHenry for it, while McHenry and his friends blamed Tricky. Definitely it can be said that Tricky was indicted by the grand jury for his part in the affair, that he left the country and did not live to return, nor to meet the accusation. A newspaper seldom publishes such an article. It began on the front page of the Globe on October 10 and filled nearly two and a half of its pages. In all these columns, which purported to set forth testimony in possession of the government, truth rarely entered. Had one quarter of it been fact, it would have convicted the prisoner. The prima facie case for the prosecution must have seemed to outsiders to be strong indeed, or this could not have appeared. The names of the newly discovered witnesses were plausible, although they were nearly all imaginary. A man called John H. Murphy, while passing the house, had seen Miss Borden in Mrs. Borden's room. Another mythical person, Mrs. Gustav F. Ronald, had passed the house at 9.40, had heard a terrible cry, and had seen a woman whose head was covered with a rubber cap or hood. It was a favorite theory at this time that the mysterious assassin had worn some outside covering for the hair to avoid being splattered with blood. Some newspapers and their readers found a still greater thrill in the notion that the assailant of the Bordens had dispensed with clothing altogether during the commission of the deed. A certain Peter Mahaney had witnessed all that. Mrs. Ronald had seen and, in addition, had recognized the hooded woman as the prisoner. The street opposite must have thronged with witnesses. Mr. and Mrs. Frederick Chase, calling at the house on Wednesday evening, had overheard a quarrel between Mr. Borden and his younger daughter, about a man, a lover. This seemed at last to bring into the case the love interest for which many newspaper reporters had almost pined away and died. Bridget Sullivan, an actual person at last, was to tell of a quarrel which happened the same evening. The police matron was to amplify an adverse bit of testimony, already in evidence, and to say that she had heard Miss Borden tell John Vinicum Morse to get those things out of the way in my room, and then they can do their worst. On the following day, the Globe made a partial retraction. It, the story, 
has been proven wrong in some particulars. Mr. McHenry, the Globe said, had furnished the story and admits that the names and addresses of witnesses were purposely false. The other Boston papers were quoted as denying the truth of the yarn. One part, which was entirely withdrawn, to the sorrow of all good reporters, was the love interest. Finally, on October 12, the Globe, in a boxed article on the front page, made a full retraction. It had been grievously misled, suffered an imposition, unparalleled, cunningly contrived, but based on facts. It expressed its heartfelt apology for the inhuman reflection on Miss Borden's honor, and included in the apology Mr. John Vinicum Morse. Mr. Tricky soon left Boston, and in November he was killed by a railroad train in Canada. It may be imagined that more than one of Miss Borden's rural neighbors and sympathizers solemnly remarked, it was a judgment on him. The final result of this wretched affair may well have been to add to the number of those who distrust the newspapers, and to persuade them that if this damaging story had been acknowledged as false, everything which seemed to tell against the prisoner might equally be false. The grand jury of Bristol met in November and listened to the evidence for a week. An unusual course was followed in that the district attorney, Mr. Knowlton, invited Miss Borden's counsel, Mr. Jennings, to be present and offer evidence for the defense. It is not customary for the grand jury to hear others beside the witnesses for the prosecution. The sitting was adjourned until December 1, when a curious thing happened. Miss Alice Russell reappeared and gave testimony which had not been offered before. On December 2nd, the grand jury found three indictments against Miss Borden, one for the murder of her father, one for the murder of her stepmother, and one in which she was charged with both murders. Mr. Porter says that there were 21 jurymen present when the vote was taken, 20 voted guilty, and one voted against that finding. In the months which followed the preliminary trial, and especially in the autumn of 1892, the district attorney made a careful study of the case and pursued investigations in various directions. The members of the grand jury, after they completed their work, had desired to draw up a paper certifying to the impartial manner in which he had presented the case for the government. But he advised them not to do so. The question of the prisoner's sanity had been raised soon after the arrest, and inquiries were made into the family history, but with negative results. Miss Borden had more than once spoken of the burglary of the house, which had taken place a year before the murders, and as the police had been consulted at the time, they were asked for a report of the circumstances. In the latter part of June, 1891, so it appeared, Mr. Borden had called upon City Marshal Hilliard and asked that officer's help. A police captain was detailed to go with Mr. Borden to the house on 2nd Street, where they found Mrs. Borden, the Mrs. Borden, and Bridget Sullivan. In a small room on the second floor, Mr. Borden's desk had been broken open. Eighty dollars in money, banknotes, twenty-five or thirty in gold, a large number of streetcar tickets, Mrs. Borden's watch with a chain, and some other small trinkets had been stolen. The family were at a loss to see how anyone could get in and out unseen. Miss Lizzie Borden said, The cellar door was open, and someone might have come in that way, 
the officer visited the houses in the neighborhood and exhausted all the resources of the average detective, who is not the creation of a novelist. That is, he asked if anybody had seen a mysterious stranger entering the Borden house. One clue he did get. Miss Lizzie Borden presented him with a six- or eight-penny nail, which she had found in the keyhole of a bedroom door. Apparently, nobody seemed to think that the robber, in leaving this behind him, had made an adequate return for his thefts. Three times within two weeks, said the officer. Mr. Borden remarked to him, I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. He was right, and the robbery, like the greater crime in that household, remains a mystery. We usually read, during the investigation of a notorious crime, that the police, or the prosecuting officers, or the attorneys for the defense, or the governor, are receiving hundreds or thousands of letters from cranks and others. Suggestions, insinuations, accusations, and threats. As few of us are policemen, criminal lawyers, or governors, we take this for granted and seldom expect to see such letters. Perhaps we would rather not see them. It has been my privilege to read five or six large packets of communications received by the district attorney during his investigation of these murders, and a more curious and varied collection could not be imagined. From all parts of the United States they came, written on all possible colors and shapes of paper, in every type of handwriting, and every degree of sanity. Excitable, calm, puerile, nonsensical, pompous, intelligent, a few, preposterous, or insulting. They poured in by the dozen. A railroad conductor in the West asked Mr. Knowlton to lay aside his official duties and embark upon genealogical research, which had no reference to the crime. An embattled Protestant from Vermont called upon him to clap Bridget Sullivan and her confessor into prison and extort admissions from them, apparently by torture. He ended, Beware of Jesuits. A man in Albany gleefully admitted that he alone was guilty in this case. He had many a rival in his claim. But that he was moving about so fast that the police could not hope to catch him. Spiritualists, clairvoyants, crystal gazers, and other seers had discovered strange things under the flooring of the boarding house or concealed in the stuffing of the sofa. The Ouija board had been invoked and had answered a long series of questions in its maddening fashion half-devil and half-child. Its control was much interested in Lizzie's cat, that doubtful animal which, so it was alleged, had been treated with such slight consideration by its mistress. One bold blade, who signed Voter, wrote an abusive postcard to inform Mr. Knowlton that he deserved to be kicked out and that he would never again be district attorney. A sound prophecy, since he was soon promoted by the voters of the state to the office of Attorney General. Many of the letters began with apologies and assurances that the writers were acting solely in the interests of justice. But a lady from Brooklyn, with a romantic name, an adherent to the most popular theory of all, closed by saying, If the suggestions prove of any value, I shall expect to be suitably rewarded. The attorney was advised to hunt for the missing weapon in the piano, in the back of the kitchen stove in the barn, the outhouses, and the well. 
the thought that the policemen might have looked in some of these places did not occur to the letter writers. One man, who sent in some curious and rather acute messages, wrote that if the search continued unsuccessful, the house should be burned down in order to find the weapon, as nobody, in his opinion, would ever wish to live in it again. He cited the Burdell and Nathan houses in New York in support of this theory, but he was mistaken, since the house is cheerfully occupied at the present time. A band of letter writers were convinced that the weapon had been not a hatchet, but a flat iron, and upon this contention they wrote pages. A serious correspondent from Danvers, Massachusetts, proposed that both men and women should be set to work battering the skulls of subjects in the dissecting room in order to prove experimentally the difference between blows inflicted by persons of opposite sexes. Two or three correspondents suggested that the Fall River murderer was probably such a one who murdered somebody in 1884, or another man who killed someone else again in 1879, the fancy being that there are only one or two murderers in the land, and that they go about from place to place like traveling salesmen, or the public hangman in England. But by far the most popular theory was that held by the Waterproof 55, or Gossamer 55 school, the idea that the clothes of the assailant of the Bordens might have been protected from bloodstains by a waterproof to be washed or destroyed was widely entertained and plausibly argued. Perhaps the most intelligent letter of all came from a lady who also wrote to the Attorney General. Her suggestion was that there was something curious in the action of the discoverer of the body of the dead man in remaining in that fatal house, where, for all anybody could know, the murderer was still lurking. Another suggestion was that the absence of bloodstains from clothing might well prove too much when that clothing was worn by the child of a murdered man who was the first to discover the death. Both of these facts in the Borden case, by the way, offer a striking comparison to certain incidents in the Nathan murder described later in this book. There was a similar situation there, but the results were quite different. Six months elapsed between the indictment and the trial before the Superior Court, one of the almost invariable delays of our law, but one which provoked no complaint from the defense. The situation was unusual, and it is best indicated by a letter from the district attorney to the attorney general, written in the spring. A capital case in Massachusetts is frequently prosecuted for the state by the attorney general, but Mr. Pillsbury was not in good health. Mr. Knowlton, in his letter of April 24, 1893, said, among other things, Personally, I would like very much to get rid of the trial of the case, and fear that my own feelings in that direction may have influenced my better judgment. I feel this all the more upon your not unexpected announcement that the burden of the trial will come upon me. I confess, however, I cannot see my way clear to any disposition of the case other than a trial. Should it result in disagreement of the jury, there would be no difficulty then in disposing of the case by admitting the defendant to bail, but such a verdict either way would render such a course unnecessary. The case has proceeded so far and an indictment has been found by the grand inquest of the county that it does not seem to me that we ought to take the responsibility of discharging her without trial, even though there is every reasonable expectation of a verdict of not guilty. I am unable to concur fully in your views as to the probable result. 
I think it may well be that the jury might disagree upon the case. But even in my most sanguine moments, I have scarcely expected a verdict of guilty. The situation is this. Nothing has developed which satisfies either of us that she is innocent. Neither of us can escape the conclusion that she must have had some knowledge of the occurrences. She has been presented for trial by a jury which, to say the least, was not influenced by anything said by the government in favor of the indictment. I cannot see how any other course than setting the case down for trial and trying it will satisfy that portion of the public sentiment, whether favorable to her or not, which is worthy of being respected. This remarkable letter, so accurate in its prediction, shows how clearly the man best informed understood both the strength and the weaknesses of the government's case. The fact that every investigation so far had resulted in a decision adverse to the interests of the accused makes many of the final comments in the newspapers seem absurd. Yet the facts that the evidence was still purely circumstantial, that the unquestioned weapon had not been found, that the absence of bloodstains upon the prisoner's clothing was a telling point in her favor, as well as the difficulty in prevailing upon a jury to convict a woman except upon the most overwhelming proof. All these points made the district attorney understand the hopelessness of convicting a defendant whose guilt he sincerely believed was nevertheless certain. Miss Borden was arraigned before Justice Hammond of the Superior Court in New Bedford on May 8th, when she pleaded to the indictments. Early in the next month, she was taken again to the courthouse in the same city to be put upon her trial. Newspaper readers had almost forgotten her. In the first week in June, they were amusing themselves with reports of one of the damage suits of Laidlaw against Russell Sage for injuries received in the attempt to blow up Mr. Sage. An archaic problem was under debate, whether the World's Fair in Chicago should be opened on Sundays. Lord Dunraven's Valkyrie was winning in English waters and seemed the probable challenger for the America's Cup. At the end of the week, Edwin Booth died at his home. The players. These far-off events were news during the week that Miss Borden came, as the report said, to face her accusers. That's all for this week. If you want to see how Lizzie's trial comes out, or check out the other great true murder stories in this book, use the link in the description to find the audiobook or the Kindle or print editions. I'm not sure yet where we're headed next week. It'd be cool if you came back to find out. In the meantime, if you're so inclined, please give this book five stars or support any way you can. 